Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. My name is Nick Perrin, and I'm an actor, writer, and game master. And on Tabletop, I talk with an expert game master every week to find out the best ways to run amazing games and tell epic stories. Looking to start DMing? Or maybe you've been a game master for a long time and want to spice up your table? Then this podcast is for you. Tabletop is released on Mondays wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's episode of Tabletop Journeys. We are in our third week of February when we are focusing on and highlighting BIPOC voices in the tabletop role-playing game community. And, man, we've got a really fascinating interview for you all tonight. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before we get into that, Mr. Miller, Mr. Myers, good evening. How are things down in the wonderful and soon-to-be-positively-frigid state of Connecticut? Yeah, it's planning to be cold. I hear Maine is going to be colder. It's going to be 15 like, below tomorrow night. 15 yeah, below, I, yeah. I saw a negative 46 with windchill in Bangor is what I was <sighs> looking at. Some such ludicrous number. The kind of temperatures that caused me to move away from Maine several yeah. years ago. Coldest day um, in five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been away for a lot longer than that, but yeah, things are going well. Things have happened. Just to give our team here, our Greater Tabletop Journeys team, a quick pat on the back. I was just notified via Twitter that the Dragonlance Companion book that we were a part of was chosen as one of the DM Guild's 10 best 5e products by the, by the by at D&D Fanatics. And what was the culmination of the entire team led by Jimmy at Splinterverse, that work is clearly being lauded and rewarded. And I can't say enough how proud I am of the work that the not just the three of us did, but those who helped Tabletop Journeys when we produced products, Trish, Marty, other folks who helped us get through and get bring this to bear, and and the whole team at Swiniverse Media for help for just selecting us and letting us be a part of this. It's yeah. been a great experience. Oh, absolutely. That is really yeah, awesome. That is awesome. I hadn't even heard that. They're fantastic news. Yeah. And well done, the Jimmy at Splinterverse. Yeah. So. All right, Glenn, how about you, sir? Have you finished the skirt on the RV to go ahead and uh, try to keep the warmth in the vehicle instead of on the outside? Yeah, I finished putting a skirt on the RV today and getting ready for this and the coming cold weather that we're going to have this weekend. Burr. Without any further ado, let's introduce tonight's guest. Tonight we have with us John Mendoza, who is coming on the show to go ahead and talk. He's going to be raising the class of the show significantly because I know we've got some wonderfully well-written academic articles about tangentially and concerning work that he's doing using tabletop role-playing games in a mental health capacity. John, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I gave the audience a primer on kind of what it is that you do, but for everybody else out there, could you Fill in the gaps a little bit about uh, about what it is that what is that you do and what your area of expertise is. Yeah, so the stuff that I currently do is a, basically looking into tabletop role playing games as a therapeutic tool, right? So using them as the vehicle with which we develop uh, through which we deliver. There we go. Words are hard. Therapeutic <laughs> interventions from the field of mental health. So part of that is looking not only at what 
games you use, but also how you use those games intentionally. Because, for example, the field that I work in is something called drama therapy. So we're using it through tenets of theater as therapy of using drama and the distance between character to deliver emotional regulation, social skills, any number of clinical objectives. But the way that I do it is not necessarily going to be the way, for example, someone who does cognitive behavioral therapy will look at the same way. We can both use tabletops as the tool with which we deliver those things. The goals might be different, but the vehicle is the same, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds... Just as fascinating as it sounded uh, when I first met you on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to go ahead and cracking in here because the articles that you sent were fantastic. And I'm really I'm really looking forward to drilling into some of the bits on here for uh, for the edification of our audience. And like I said, taking the show a little bit highbrow. Bringing some nice academic chops to the show tonight. It'll be good. Yeah, so. I liked how you bring some class or something <laughs> along those lines. I'm like, it's not like it's hard to outclass us. I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, that was a little pun. It's we're a tabletop role-playing game podcast. I'm going to be bringing some class to the... Oh, you yeah. meant classes and job, not classes and status. Level, yeah. I'm a level Got five that. tired psychologist. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, wait, wait, is that you're a level five psychologist and your condition is tired? Have you obtained levels of exhaustion? <laughs> like uh, exhaustion? No, the yeah. levels of exhaustion are the mechanic on top of that. The class is tired psychologist specifically. Mm-hmm. It's like a okay. subclass. Right. It's like a subclass of psychologist is the tired yeah. psychologist. Yeah, yep, precisely. <laughs> so, wait, we're getting off close to the jail here we gotta be careful so um <laughs> so i guess that brings us up to initiative so we can start asking questions Ooh, so, let me break out the see. dice green or red green or red i'm gonna go red tonight i'm gonna go my candle keep dice that's a 13 for me i got a four i have a three Wow. All right. Excellent. Beat you so, with my four. I th- was it our last interview that I went last with a 14, and this time I'm going first with a 13? So that's them's the way the dice breaks. Mm. So let me take it to go ahead and start. So, John, I'm going to I'm gonna really start with the low ball, like hopefully easy to answer question. And sure. ask, how did you get into this course of study? What was the progression that brought you from, I presume, a role player into the mental health field? Or maybe it was the other way around. Yeah. Oh man, that is that, yeah. That question is actually really easy to answer. Not only because it's it, the track makes sense, but also I know three other people for whom the story is the exact same. Uh, so originally, like I did my undergrad in psychology, and I took a little time off. I was an, a background extra and actor for a while in the area where I live. During that time, I was still I was still a gamer. I played a Pathfinder like first edition campaign for a while for every week in the city for a while, and then D and D next and such like that. And I got involved back into it when I started running things with the Ventures League. I was one of the local coordinators for the area when the, that program still existed, and started working with a nonprofit that we put together after that program fell to run things in the northeast region of the United States, and. We would go to conventions, we would run organized play there. And while I was there, there was always, at PAX East, for example, there was always a mental health track of panels that you would see like the same six faces over and over if you went to those conventions often enough. And one time I happened to have a break and I went and went to go look and blew my own mind going there of, wait, hold on, you can do this? This is a thing? This is the thing? <laughs> hold on, back up. What do you mean I can combine psychology and role-playing games, the things that I both really love? Hold up. So I looked up all of the people on those panels, and one of them, Adam Davis, who is one of the co-founders of game to grow out in Seattle, Washington, is a drama therapist. And I went, well, what the heck is that? So I Googled it and was like, oh, it's therapy using theater techniques. Why? Okay. Didn't. Great. Where has this been my entire life? So yeah, and... Went basically ended up going to grad school for it. I'm wrapping that hopefully this year. Did my thesis on the idea of role playing games as drama therapy. And actually, one of the, I think the, the things I'm most proud of right now is we did a panel for the drama therapy convention where it was myself, Adam Davis, and two other students who were all like, Adam Davis was the one who really showed us this was a thing we could do. And was like, how did you first come to this? And all three of us just pointed at him on the panel. <laughs> so that was how I ended up here. I've always been a role-playing gamer. I did 3.5 Pathfinder GURPS back in the day. We Don't love GURPS. <laughs> That's fair. I was about to say, I don't think I'd ever do that again, but fair enough. (laughs) To each their own. I don't judge. It's a lot of fun. I have to be in the mood for GURPS, you know, like it's one of those things I really have to be in the mood for. I wouldn't Um, necessarily call it love, but I played a lot of GURPS when we were younger because somebody else (laughs) loved GURPS. I liked it, though. Hey, you know what? Give me a system with flaws to add new to, where you can use flaws to take away points and then, or to grant you more points towards other powers. And I'm always in for that. Oh, yeah, no, I like that. 
I play Savage Worlds. I get it. And you did live action stuff too, you said, right? Or I read in the article? Yeah. Yeah. So I've done, I got back, I really got back into LARPing, I want to say, oh God, what year is it? Five, (laughs) six years ago. One of my friends invited me to a sort of summer LARP. It was all like one day, four hour parlor LARPs. You can, you go in, you play four hours with a bunch of people in a pre-generated scenario with pre-generated characters and then you just, and you're done. And I, I hit that drug real hard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I'm back. Okay, here we are. Yeah, but yeah, I was I was at the point gearing up to start toward maybe joining more like of the camp long term every three month site LARPs. And then 2020 happened. Luanika and I actually met at a vampire LARP way back in 1990, <laughs> and we don't talk about numbers that that far long ago. And yeah, like that's I have participated in numerous LARP adjacent activities over the last few years. So it's a yeah, vampire. The masquerade is actually how I met Josh was doing LARP. Through you know, I that. always forget that, but you're right. I forgot that. I, I knew that I met Lee Winnie. And I forgot that. It, yeah. yeah. Magic of the blood. The old Tremere mm-hmm. game that you used to run with her. Yeah. No, that was, what's that? Yeah, that was, man. I don't think it was a fully a Tremere game at the time, but it was like, I, I had a game and then she had one that came out afterwards. And then we all went to that and yeah. it was a thing, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we did a I, thing like in downtown Portland one night in the middle of freaking January. That was cool. That was fun. Yeah. yeah. Glenn, I think you are next with the four, right? I am he next is. with the four, yeah. surprising. Yeah. When I first saw that we were going to be doing an interview with you on this subject, John, I was excited. And part of the reason is because we've touched on it a little bit in the past when we've dealt with a couple of people who were creating content that was around helping represent disabilities and issues Mm -hmm. that people have in the space. And in those, we talked about it some, because while I've never actually participated in it, I've been aware of role-playing games used for therapy and the mental health field for quite some time. It It was something that we actually looked at doing with one of my sons in the end. That's not the way that we went. But what did really help him hugely was the role-playing group in his high school and getting in, in the, into the gaming group and learning to experiment with some of his social skills and things like that amongst peers while he was pretending to be somebody that wasn't quite himself. Made a huge difference for him. Huge difference. So I love that you want to get into that. I just want to say that first and applaud you for wanting to help kids or adults because it can be such a fantastic tool. So to that end, and glomming off of that question, based on your education and research so far, groups like that, even if they're outside of the mental health community, like a high school role-playing group or the gaming club at school to help kids with interests aside from that, but also in the role-playing space, start branching out, learning social skills, et cetera. How do you think that type of extracurricular impacts students? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I really think it, it's a really. It's, I think the answer is a little bit simpler than I think the question makes it sound, which is that the only difference between a therapeutic group and a and the high school group, for example, is that there's a clinician at the head of the therapeutic group. That's really the only difference, right? And to the intentionality of it is important. But that being said, just because a game isn't therapy doesn't mean it can't be therapeutic. Just I think one of the reasons I came to it is I was a theater kid, right? So I was the kid in the corner with a Game Boy who didn't talk to anybody for the longest period of time and I did theater and then that was and that was one of the key things that brought me out of my shell and I did role-playing games and it was it's a similar thing if you're playing a character who may or may not be as close to you as you want it to be at the time and it is also one of those things where you get to play around with sort of consequences and choices in a place where you're not directly responsible for those things you get to practice and see what happens when you do certain things and learn how the world reacts to you in one way but then that can be done in any situation so you're like a high school group for example or even any other groups in school educational groups for things like that those can all be therapeutic in that they by nature of the thing that we are doing it's a time where you will practice being social because generally if you're doing those things and you're not really help like the group is annoyed with you they'll generally let you know pretty quickly but the only difference between that kind of thing and doing it with therapy is that in a high school group, for example, while you might still want to tell a great story, you still might have a really good plot as a GM. And for a group like that, you still want to have a story and give them that character and stuff. The only difference is that I, as a therapist, specifically get paid to throw my feelings under the bus a little. Even if you take my story and derail it completely, it's more about what you're doing. When I'm a GM player with my friends, if someone is like derailing the story and making it difficult for everybody, including myself, I get to go, hey, could you not? Could we like, we all gather down to do this thing. Could you sit down and play the game? And can we 
have a little bit like or more importantly, what about it isn't interesting you what's going on? Can I make a hook to get you in? Whereas in a therapy game, my all my clients decide to go do something else entirely. I throw that under the bus and move on because there is no point in forcing them back on a track that I want necessarily if they're clearly wanting to go in this other direction. My job then is to take that and corral that and see, okay, where are we going? Why are we doing this intentionally? How can I use this as the therapeutic or learning experience? So yeah, the only really difference is that there's a therapist at the head of one and you usually don't need insurance to do it. That's fantastic. (laughs) And it's really interesting once you start talking about all the pieces to it too, about how a large part of the difference between just gaming together and trying on your own and the intent is a little bit of a change in that in the social contract because it's not everybody around the table trying to have equal fun anymore now it really is somebody's job and their job is to facilitate this part of it for everyone else so that's a really interesting takeaway for me i like it yeah and to follow up on that don't get me wrong I can have fun, right? It's fun for me to play the game. But the point is that your fun as a therapeutic GM is not the most important thing in the room for you anymore. It's okay. Are these, again, it's, are these clients meeting their goals? Are what's going on with the progress sort of, there's a little extra piece of it that is now attached to that clinical aspect that will fully, that won't, it doesn't allow me to fully focus on just running a fun game. There's an extra bit I now have to think about and worry about that is person goal oriented in some way. So that's, again, those are the kind of, that's a big difference is that the focus focus of what is now most important to me shifts to the back as something else becomes more important. I bet that is incredibly fulfilling, though, when you get to see somebody start to make progress and meet those goals. Extremely. I wanted to follow up as we were talking about the social contract, because that leads to my first question. Nicely done, Glenn. You're welcome. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we're big fans, and we consistently laud the virtues of Session Zero. We talk about it all the time, setting the parameters of that social contract, the use of safety tools like lines, veils, X cards, as need be. That all plays into what we try to do with our games. Can you give us a peek into the therapeutic version of a Session Zero? If the three of us were in therapy, and this was going to be the method of therapy that we were going to be engaged in what would that session zero look like for us yeah so i would say it not quite so different as the one you might come to expect again one of the things we are doing is things like these are these are your safety tools let's talk about the characters let's figure out what kind of stories you want to tell what kind of world we want to be in if you are if you don't want to if you want to we use the x card in the games as well if you aren't comfortable with this topic we will stop and take a pause and see what happens i would say that really the only thing that you intentionally add on very strictly is again like these are like site rules if you're doing sort of an if it's an outpatient thing and they're all coming to a site to do this or if it would be an inpatient thing and they're on site already it's reinforcing of okay just remember these are the rules of the site these are the rules of the place that we are in and we have to like okay like we're not here to for example if you're in a library we're not here to play with the books while we're doing this we're here to run around the room and all these kinds of things for example but the important thing about that too is that it's there's a very sort of overt setting of expectations because for example if you're working with some kids who are on the spectrum or who have adhd you can't just assume that they know some of these conventions in terms of the space they're in In terms of when it's someone's turn we're going to let them talk we're going to give them depending on what their goals are give them the chance to speak and come up with their ideas don't just shout out what you want their character to do right before they get to think about and decide what they want to do for example so it's a lot of setting norms and boundaries and sort of with kind of sometimes the expectation that sometimes they're not going to they're going to break those norms or they're going to break those rules and it's not an educational setting we're not trying to get you to follow rules and stay there the goal is to be like hey so i've noticed you've you're having some for example you're having some trouble not just burning out what you want your friend what you want your friends to do what's going on with that how can we help you i was like what's going on is there a thing that we can help you do so that you can let people talk and then go like how can we make this work because this person over here wants to play their character and you're yelling at them across the table and they're starting to get a little it looks like they're starting to get a little frustrated how can we deal with that and that's what i mean by the backs by it takes the backseat sometimes you have to stop the game just to do something like that whereas generally for example if it was something of that sort in a game that i was running for friends i might wait till the snack break or i might wait till the session was over and be like hey so i've noticed this is happening can we talk about that as a table what's going on like i noticed you're a little distracted or you're looking down you're a little snappy today in general i don't 
try to police or monitor my players nearly as much as I do with, for example, a client. Just because in when you have clients, like their mental health is the number one priority. Whereas when I'm playing with friends, there is a little bit more leeway to be like, okay, I can expect you to have most of my friend, most of my players are adults. I can generally be like. I expect you to have a handle on your own things. If you need help, let me know. But that's, I'm not there to do that specifically today. We're here to like, you know, punch Vecna and go home. I'm like, right? I'm like, <laughs> this is what I do when I'm not working. I'd like to continue doing that. The attunement and that sort of piece of seeing what's going on is really important to both of those things. It just means that it's the social contract. Sometimes it needs to be laid out a little bit more explicitly because I can't just assume like with my friends that they're just going to kind of figure it out amongst themselves because sometimes that's not how it works another great question both of those questions were excellent Glenn, by the way that's i try i try this is our job right not, quite not yet, to mention that's... a blind squirrel finds an well, acorn once in a while too yeah it's our job it may not be the job but it yeah, is yeah, yeah, our yeah, job yeah. that's fair that's fair that's fair all right, gentlemen. It's certainly the job I want. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So, I've been interviewing for three years. I'm hoping someday someone's going to say, yes, you can do this full time. <laughs> All right. Let's round two here. Let's roll up and see how the dice fall. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not switching die. I'm going to stick with the, Fourth, the hot hand. Biggest, bigger than all the numbers last round. Yep. I got an 11. So that's 18. Kids right. rocking. From first to worst. All right. Oh, yeah. I grew up as a middle child. Now I have to stay the middle interviewee, interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, goodness. No, so, no psychoanalysis on the show, John, please. That's a, don't, uh, <laughs> you're not paying me. Like, we're good. <laughs> so one of the things that I've had a lot of experience with anecdotally, and by anecdotally, I mean with several of my six children, is using RPGs for academic purposes. RPGs and magic and lumping those all in together. And before I was just using those same types of games as for academic purposes with my two younger brothers, as well as games in general for that type of thing. So I have a lot of familiarity with that. And I notice that there's a lot of bleed over for social skills and social improvements in addition to the academic things. And I guess my my question is, based on your research, what would you offer to teachers, group leaders, even parents who have children who are having some challenges, not expecting them to become therapists, because that's a professional title. And some of those very specific things that you mentioned as answers to your previous questions, we wouldn't expect group leaders and stuff to necessarily be able to do. But what are some of the best considerations that they should have in mind if they're trying to get more of these social improvements to come to uh, into their games or or throughout their players or their kids or what have you? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I wanted to double back again real quick before I get to that sort of that last question, the last section of that question, in that there's a lot of things that you can just learn by having kids play games, right? So for example, just stepping outside of even the complicatedness of the role-playing game, for example, Forbidden Island teaches you critical thinking and thinking ahead as well as teamwork, right? Because you have to figure out where you're going to go and how you're going to plan to do these things, how you're going to get them and get off the island together. I mean, in some cases can also teach you the benefits of self-sacrifice, depending on how screwed your particular round is. But there's a lot of things that can be gleaned just from playing games, right? It's the spoonful of sugar with the medicine, as it were. Some kids will not realize that they are learning things that school would be teaching them if they're playing it through a game. A basic arithmetic can be done by through Magic the Gathering, for example, identifying patterns and recognition, seeing very quickly, identifying symbols and those kinds of things, all from an educational point of view, are really powerful things to just be teaching kids regardless. In terms of being more intentional the way you do it and really keeping an eye on the social contract and the sort of nature of a bunch of kids in a room, for example. Just basic group dynamics things. Keep an eye keep an eye on why kids are getting frustrated or if there's patterns in when they tend to get frustrated. What is the reason why those frustrations exist? Is it because they're not succeeding the way they want to? Is it because someone else is succeeding at something that they're supposed to be good at in the context of the game, for example? One thing I think of for, is if you're playing, for example, Dungeons and dragons and every class has a thing they're good at unless you know the game very well and then wizards are good at everything so but that's the kind of thing you enter is okay is there someone who is now overshadowing somebody 
who has some a better grasp of system mastery and now is actually pushing their character in ways that other people can't keep up. It's or to use my other favorite example, what is the overall power pool of the commander deck pod you're playing with, right? Are you going to have someone who's got their deck that they've put together that's the pre-con that they've built with like their parents or something and someone who's figured out how to run Joy or the Gitu? That's not a thing that's going to compete very well with that certain level. And it's all really keeping an eye on that balance. And we don't want to not encourage kids who are demonstrating system mastery to stop. But it is not is less about demonstrating the mastery and more sharing the spotlight with the other kids at the table. Because if you're always going to be the one solving the problem, okay, maybe you've progressed, but now you're alienating yourself from all the people who are ostensibly there to have the same experience as you and not giving them a time to share in the same joy that you do. So that little bit of fostering of empathy and engagement being like, there is something to be said for not always solving the problem because you can. There's something also to be said to letting other people figure it out and supporting them in that way that may not seem super apparent. So yeah, I would say that generally that kind of paying attention to like, what is the balance in the group? What is the general temperament? Like, are there some kids who are getting more of the spotlight or not? Are there some kids who are sometimes also not seeking the spotlight, who are very content to just stay back and let the game go as more spectators than they are participants? And at that point, you're just making sure, hey, do you want to do something here? Checking in with them. And if they don't, you don't have to push. It's okay. They'll come to it. If you offer and they are like, I don't want to. It's like the idea that they have the opportunity if they want to. Kids who want that will take advantage of that if they want to. But it's the point of giving them the comfort to be able to say, actually, I would like to try this time, I think is really the important thing just in a general sense. For my second question, as I grew up, and it's a little bit less of a problem today, but as I grew up, there was a solid social stigma surrounding role-playing, particularly tabletop, because that's predominantly what there was. You didn't have as many MMORPGs back then because, you know, the internet didn't exist. I'm old. Remember the 19... <laughs> from earlier, right? And I know that's gotten a whole lot better. But even without looking into the biases and prejudices of an elder generation, even amongst their peers, sometimes for kids that can be viewed as depending on your crowd, cool or not cool. So in terms of trying to approach role-playing from a therapeutic standpoint and trying to get people to buy into your program, trying to get kids who are willing, and then actually I don't know exactly what age groups you worked with. We're talking games, so I assumed kids, but I'm an adult and I play, so and adults could get just as much out of it, or adults, or if it's kids their parents and getting their buy-in that this is actually going to help their kid as opposed to be just a bunch of malarkey or whatever. Do you run into that much or people in your profession run into that much? And how do you work your way past it? How do you draw players? And then if they have guard parents or guardians, get the sign off of the parents and guardians. And do you run into a lot of slow down there where you're talking to the parents now you've got to convince them that it's a good thing yeah that's a really great question so i, I first off i want to name that yeah the satanic panic is a little less than it used to be a lot um less. Yeah, significant significantly so um i will say there are some i've run into some folks especially adults generally who you know when they hear oh yeah there's like monsters and demons and things they're sometimes their initial action is like hold up what I don't I don't know if I want to do that. But for example, like I, I will say that I did what we call an in-service, which is a, a demonstration for staff on the thing that you were working on or some sort of some experiential that you're going to do. I did an in-service for a couple of the staff members at the site that I currently work at. One of those people had that kind of, oh, I don't know about demons like reaction thing. And I went, okay, but give it a shot. If you don't like it, you can walk out. Like it's no big deal. They were, I think, the person who was most mad that we had to stop after 50 minutes at the end of it because they really understood that. So that, there's that piece of I think that there is a the interesting thing about using tabletop games as a therapeutic tool is that the therapy like what we are trying to do is get people who to do therapy right that's the goal just to is retention you want you can't do work with anyone if they won't show up so tabletops are more importantly the vehicle through which we get people to show up so generally the people who are going to do something like tabletop therapy are people who are generally inclined to like tabletop games to begin with and who have parents who are generally willing to support them in that kind of hobby because it's a way of it's the important piece is 
outreach and not necessarily that they do tabletop therapy specifically. This is one of those things that like you can get very stuck in like, oh, this is the way I do therapy. And so everyone should do this kind of therapy because I think it's the, I think it's the best. And I will say very honestly, some people will not do tabletop therapy and that is perfectly fine. Right. There are other ways to gain the sort of skills and practice that we offer through tabletop therapy. It's just that tabletop therapy is the shortcut to say, hey, you already know this thing. This is a thing you might be comfortable with. We can do that with therapy if that's something that interests you. And so for, again, yeah, I've seen some work with adults and stuff that's not really necessarily my peer view. I've primarily done work with kids and adolescents. But that kind of, the draw-in is the point, not necessarily getting them to do tabletop. So if tabletop is the thing that draws you in, we will offer it. If it's music, we'll do it. If it is drama, we'll do it. If it's art, we'll do it. But that's that's the main point is I don't really necessarily go out of my way to try and drag people into tabletop therapy who are super against it because that resistance already puts them in a mindset where I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this work. And I'm already, I already have my doubts about it. So I will say that generally, yeah, I don't really try to force someone to do tabletop therapy if it's not something they want to do. I'm much more concerned about getting about casting the net and catching as many people as I can who might not be in therapy otherwise if it weren't for the safety of this is a thing that I know and understand and therefore I can go there and feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah. It's another tool in the toolbox. It's not the only hammer. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. personal bit not so you can be my therapist but just me revealing myself to our audience more than anything else i have been a person who celebrates therapy my whole life and i say this because i have at various times in my life for a lot of reasons been in therapy or therapeutic situations from a very young age until my my young adult years a lot of years where i didn't do it and and various times I've come back to it based on the circumstances that are happening in my life. And my experience with therapy and therapists has been not every style of therapy works for every person. Not every therapist works for every person. And so a lot of it does come down to finding the right style. The problems I had when I was four are not the problems I have now that I'm 50. And the same style of therapy would not work. Quite honestly, the same therapist likely wouldn't work unless I'd had them all along. But I think it's important to note in this discussion that, as you said, or as Josh said, uh, even it's, it is a tool in the toolbox. It is not the only one. It's not do this is the panacea. This is the thing that's going to save the universe. It is if other things aren't working, here's something to consider, perhaps even try again with a licensed professional who knows what they're doing, has done their research, done their work, and then see what the results are. See if it is getting you the results you were hoping it would get you. That's almost a perfect setup actually for my question, Luini. So I appreciate that. So the question that I wanted to ask was about the community of mental health professionals out there and how they are looking at this research and how they are looking at the uh, this the advent of this tool to put into their toolbox and kind of that I'm going to ask a two-parter question, but it's okay. Really closely related. So that's kind of the first question is what's the general reception from the community. And then thing two is, are there like at what level of gamer or storyteller does a therapist need to be for this therapy to be effective? Is there a point where it's, if they're, not super familiar with the rules or whatever, that there's like a gap that like it's not a good tool for them to try to implement. Yeah. So I would say that in terms of the community of mental health, it is not a particularly recent thing that's been happening. People have been experimenting with sort of uh, tabletop therapy and the way that tabletops are used in therapy. There's articles as far back as, you know, 1984. Or I want to say, I think as it was when Asherman was, which was an article about how not to do it. 
particularly well. It's the one that we use as a, this is really not how you do it. And I'll get, I'll actually touch back on that when I answer the second part of your question. But though there's a lot of people looking at it from a lot of different perspectives. There's a cognitive behavioral therapist, there's a marriage family therapist, there's dialectic behavioral, there communications, like media studies, all these people looking at tabletop games. Now that it's, again, we've passed a little bit of that sort of moral panic and it's now become a lot more widespread. There's much more people who have grown up with these sort of things who are now looking at it from the perspective of their various careers and their various fields of study. And in doing so, we've started to get a lot more people to look at it from whatever angle they've choose. There's more and more research being published right now. A lot of it is very exploratory because it's a very recent thing, but there is a lot more people looking at it from a research angle, although a lot of it is very new or there's not a lot published at the moment. There's surprisingly a lot more research into LARP because LARP started its own academic journal called the International Journal of Law of Roleplaying, I believe. Hmm. IJRT? Yes. And that's that features a lot of people in both the United States academics and also a lot of like Finnish and Nordic academics because a lot of the LARP traditions like Nordic LARP, for example, comes from that region. We have the additional interesting piece of there being a lot of research that is tangentially related to the concept of role-playing to begin with, but not necessarily tabletop role-playing. And then not only is it split up into a bunch of different fields, which is both wonderful and makes it hard to find what with the way academic journals are set up, but also there's a lot of people working on it in foreign languages. There's a lot of people working it in different countries. So for example, I mentioned there's Finnish academics. We're looking at LARP from that perspective of the Nordic tradition. There was also an article, for example, in my own research I found when I was writing my own thesis of a professor at the, I think it was I want to say Tokyo University in Japan, who was looking at the way that role-playing groups could be used with uh, folks on the autism spectrum. And I was maybe able to read about a fifth of that paper. And I was really lucky that they had a handy dandy infographic that kind of summed it up. That they also published in English. So there's a lot of these, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of like language barriers in terms of, again, always research, but there are a lot of people looking at it. It's just, it's now slowly getting to the point where it's reaching a mass where we can find it and collate it and actually start to build a, like a library of research that can be built upon out of this sort of exploratory stuff. The second part of your question, I would say, I'm going to bring back Asherman a bit. So Asherman was a study where they used Dungeons and Dragons, quote, as an intervention in, I believe it was an inpatient unit. I want to say psychopathy? Sociopathy? I don't remember what the term was at the time, but that sort of spectrum of an inpatient unit. And the results of it were like, they obsessed over the game, they used it as a way to defy the structure of the site, and this became very bad, and so we had to stop. That's 50% of the story. It turns out what actually happened is they basically did the equivalent of taking the red box, throwing it into a group of patients, going, have fun, and leaving. So that wasn't great. None of the people <laughs> on the unit understood the game even remotely. Asherman himself didn't really get the game. And so... They obsessed, they hyper-focused, and they used it as a way to, they're like, the game became about, oh, we're a group of people escaping this institution that is holding us here, yada, yada. And it was like, okay, I don't know what you expected to happen if you just did that. So to answer, to bring that around to your the second part of your question, tabletop therapy and any form of role-playing therapy is a tool like any other. And if you are not confident in that tool, you should not be using it. First off, if you're not confident in it, uh, you're, the efficacy of your ability to deliver therapy as an, inter as an intervention through that vehicle is already in question. There's the scopes of practice in terms of the ethical side of things that we have to deal with as therapists and clinicians. For example, if I'm doing, like my specialty is in drama therapy, that's what I'm learning. If I'm doing art therapy or music therapy with a kid, I really hope that I'm talking to an art therapist or music therapist and asking them questions of how to do this and really consulting with them on how to do this in a way that I can understand that allows me to bring what I understand into it. But I wouldn't call myself a music therapist or an art therapist by any means, right? That's not my focus. That's not my training. So again, if you're not comfortable with it, there's not a lot you can do. And you can also, more importantly, inadvertently cause more harm, as in the case with the Asherman study, than you're going to actually help. So it really, it really would, I would say you should at the bare minimum, again, tabling the issue of like clinical training, which you should just have, you should have a familiarity and a comfort with the system you're using. For example, I run a group that's a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. It looks mostly like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons in the way that most groups mostly look like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. But I know enough about the rules that when kids ask me certain things, I can be like, oh, I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to do that. Oh, I think you get that. You actually get that a feature like the thing that you want right now, like, like next level. Do you want to get the worst version of that right now and then waste your time having, if you're homebrewing your own race, do you want 
to get the worst version of the thing that you're about to get in a level if we just practice a little bit of the late gratification are you sure about that and but i understand at least myself what the routes of that of their characters are going what the progression of what they're doing is and how that math works so there is a way that i can use that from a therapeutic goal where i can be like i don't know if we practice a little bit of delayed gratification we can get the strictly better thing and you can use this opportunity to come up with something different that you also might want to see so i can redirect that energy into i want this thing to okay you're going to get that thing so what can we get for now that can maybe help support the thing you want to do later so there's a little bit of like mechanical mastery that you should probably have if you're going to use as a tool in the same way that you should if you're doing theater in stage shop you don't get to just jump on the bandsaw that's not how this works i love that answer and the details that you provided on the asherman study are really insightful because in my head as i was reading some of the information that you had provided us before the interview my one thought was one should be very careful about the type of adventures that you're going to run so for example if you have some people that are in a in an environment i guess one doesn't run a D jailbreak scenario if you're doing D therapy in a jail that seems like a really bad idea and i'm hoping that folks with a lot less education than therapists would know that but then based on what we know about the asherman study maybe some of those basic ideas are not as well known as one would think but if they didn't know the game to begin with that's where they just didn't understand the tool they were in there are different types of things you can do we talk on this show about the three pillars like you could take an exploration thing with kids who don't get outside or don't go to a place and that have that be a good experience that's just something that came to my mind as you were answering the question and thinking about what we were reading yeah, to piggyback on that too, I will say the in terms of what the kind of things you run, I know a, I think it was a, I believe it's a group called RPG Research, RPG Therapeutics, again, out from, I think, Seattle. I believe it was them. It might not be them. I'm blanking on who it was specifically, but I think I heard the story from them. There was a therapeutic group that, again, for people who didn't really get outside and for whom navigating the world they live in was was uh, it was a source of anxiety and a source of stress. And so there's a lot of people who would sort of rather than doing anything, they would stay home. They ran a group that, were, that was set in the city. And part of the therapeutic aspect of the role playing game was breaking out the subway maps and going, all right, so let's plan how we get from point A to point B. So they would have the practice of learning the way the trains worked or learning the way their public transportation worked without having to move. And so they had the practice of planning their own route and the practice of seeing where it would go and how they had to get from point A to point B so they would have that knowledge. And it turns out they just learned the subway system that way in a way that was made it less less of a point of anxiety because they could, in fact, take a look and it with no stakes. So it's not we didn't have to be out in the subway. Trains are screeching by, lots of people, lots of crowds, and then having to learn that right as you go. And um, the smells. It was, yeah, it was much easier to do it at home with four other people. What a fantastic example. Yeah. That's so great. To yeah. learn that piece and get a little bit more confidence. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This interview is turning out to be exactly the way that I hoped it would go. Gentlemen, initiative. See how we can wrap up this evening. My question is fairly quick. It was a potential lightning round question, but we'll go with it now. What was the most surprising thing that your research has revealed thus far? Ooh, that's a really good question. I would say, I think really, yeah, I would say the thing that's really, that's most been interesting to me is that is how many people have been looking into this in so many different ways, partially just from the research of this and also from some other projects that we've been working on. So many people, when we've asked them, have been like, oh yeah, like I've known someone who does that kind of work, but it's all a lot of people who have just been doing it on their own and been like, oh, I think I can use this as a tool with the clinical experience I already have. This is a hobby I have and it's, and it's great. And also in just how how widespread it was compared to like, when I, for example, I wrote this thesis when I started doing it as like the paper I wish I'd had of here's a base point of where to start go and here's where you can collect some research here's where you can find all of it so in in one place at least some of it all is a bit of a brag it's not all of it by a long shot but at least some of it in one place you can get started and see what's out there and go and seeing how much was out there as well as how many people were looking at role playing in general from any from so many different angles there's people who have done this again on larp there's people who have done it on role playing in mmos and the way that people play games in the video game format there's some people who had used larp camps and 
tabletop role-playing games. Uh, superhero role-playing, for example, is a really big one for in terms of people who have done that kind of work. And it's been really fascinating to see how much how much work is out there and also how much work there is to do. Again, a lot of the recent projects have been very exploratory and we see these things here and we see these things here. And a lot, a lot has been done really in, in a very focused way on examining the benefits therapeutically from like a from a quantitative angle. And so that's the piece that we're doing. A lot of it is very qualitative. A lot of it is very sort of literature review. And so seeing that that being said, it also doesn't surprise me there's a lot of people not doing the quantitative studies because we're all busy playing the games and doing the therapy. But there is that piece where I'm very fascinated to see where that comes up in the next 10, 20 years as people have started to build up like the literature review parts to the point where we can now all write a literature review and now actually do the work of quantifying and seeing what parts of these are useful. I'm very excited to see what happens in terms of that. Cool. Nice. And I remembered my question. Like, Two seconds after Lee Winnicka started. This one occurred to me a little while ago while you were discussing both the effect, I'll just bounce right into it, both the effect of the pandemic on role-playing games and the need for therapy, right? The pandemic and the lockdown really expanded both, and you touched on that earlier. But my question then becomes, how actually I already know it's complicated. So is there? do you know if there's anything on the horizon that might help make virtual therapy a little bit easier. And I say that because in state, if I'm in Connecticut and you're in Connecticut, it's easy. We can do a virtual session, no problem. But if you live in an RV like me, or you're one of the thousands of people playing your role-playing games online through a computer, whether it's because you don't leave your house very often, or whether it's because that's you don't have anybody in your life that plays role-playing games, but when you're trying to, especially for this field, because I, can, could be, I think it could be so good for so many people and the way the internet has really expanded the ease of connectivity between people across the country and the world, obviously. Do you see anything coming in terms of maybe, and I know this is a scary word, but like a national therapeutic certification or anything that would facilitate being able to do role-playing therapy through a virtual environment with multiple people. Yeah, if you can get them all in the same state, groovy, then you don't have the problem, but specifically crossing state lines. Yeah, that's a complicated question. And no, it's good. It's a very it's a very good complicated question. I will say that I hope so. And it's not simple because from the perspective of someone who's working in licensure, getting five states to agree on what a licensed clinical professions like requirements and what they need to have practiced and what they need to have taken for classes. Getting five states to agree on that is bloody impossible. For example, I can the, for the degree I have is good in Massachusetts, is tailored to the Massachusetts program. It'll probably work in Seattle. It might work in Michigan. It is absolutely not going to work in New York, just because that's a lot of very, there's a lot of very specific requirements for the way that different states handle their certification and their licensure that makes that tricky. And then you've got the also the additional sort of societal problem of crossing state lines and what state insurance covers and what insurance covers in terms of people in that kind of space as well. And like, again, for me, the, a lot, it's much easier to do that if you're in like a private practice, but I don't, I personally, as a clinician, as a professional, I don't want to see people have to go to only private practice doing for tabletop therapy because not everyone can afford that. Not everyone can afford that kind of thing. There's an accessibility component there that I really would like to see brought to other people. All that being said, I will say that there is stuff like that already on the horizon. For example, Game to Grow, the company I was talking about earlier, the, the organization out in Seattle, I know that they pilot a new initiative. I believe it's called the Hospital Program. They've been doing virtual games, I believe, with places like the University of the Texas Children's Hospital, places like that. So I know that those things are starting to be built in ways now that we've figured that out from the virtual perspective. I know that it is much easier to do it in-state because a lot of people who have in-state insurance or in-state certifications that it's, it's a paperwork problem, really. If there is an easier way to get people to work with clinicians who don't just live in their area, I would be happy to see it happen, is what I will say about right. that. Part of the other dilemma yeah. there is, say you establish a relationship with somebody. I have a fantastic relationship with my therapist, but now I'm mobile. She is licensed in Connecticut, and I move around a lot. If I'm in Florida, technically, I'm not. she's not supposed to see me. Or if you move away completely, because she's not licensed in Florida, and that's where I currently am. So aside from just for the overall concept of the role-playing community for role-playing therapy, just in general, I think it would be a fantastic thing to see some change on as, as, 
the world of interwebs and licensings move forward. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. This is a an interesting and amazing thing that's happening tonight because literally on my drive this evening before we were recording, one of the questions that came up on a talk show that I listen to often, Make Me Smart on NPR, who was kind enough to give Tabletop Journeys a shout out a couple weeks ago, was actually talking about this fact. Actually, I'm sorry. It wasn't Make Me Smart. It was Marketplace, specifically, who had mentioned it. And Kai Rizdal was talking about issues with the interstate compact. And what that effectively is, and I'll do it very briefly, just so there's a little context to your question, Glenn, is um, – Interstate compact is a set of rules that allow something to happen between states. The best example of an interstate complex that is common that everybody's aware of is a driver's license. The only reason why your driver's license ports from state to state is because every state has agreed to an interstate compact about a driver's license. Any doctors have an interstate compact. Nurses have only recently had an interstate compact and many of them are not every single state i believe there's the largest one is about 15 states wide so nurses tend to be limited as to what states they can work in the most recent one that is getting a little discussion and this is why it was on the show was about teachers and specifically because the military is lobbying for this because so many military wives are teachers and when the military personnel move those teachers can't move also because there is no interstate compact for any teacher certificate and so there's a ton of teachers or people that live in border areas like westerly and Pawkatuck, connecticut that can't swap you if you live on one side of the border you can't teach on the other side of the border and licensure for clinicians is exactly the same until there's an interstate compact you cannot cross those lines and so it will take Unfortunately, a very large lobbying body to get those types of things generated, they will start regionally. It'll be one or two states, and then another state will sign on, and some random state or half a country away will also sign on, and eventually it'll get larger and larger. That only happens with – As more and more research is done, more and more papers are published, more and more information is allowed to be in one spot because senators and congressional folks are notoriously lazy and they don't go looking in little places for information. They want it all in one place. (laughs) And when more and more podcasts talk about it to bring that topic out to their listeners and spread awareness. And and I'm I'm absolutely all for it myself, (laughs) by the way. All right, so I am going to bring it home, and I'm going to bring it home again with another like real softball question here. So for all the people out there that are listening to the show here and have said, this sounds amazing, how do I learn more? I want to do this. I want to get into this. I want to start using it in my practice, whatever. Like, how do – what's the entry point? Too. Where should they go? Yeah, totally. Like, where should they go? Who should they talk to? How do they learn more? Yeah, so I would say that – In general, you can start by finding a lot of stuff in terms of tabletop therapy. Google Scholar is your friend. It is probably one of the quickest ways to get access to academic stuff in one spot that you can actually read. Because again, academic journals have paywalls and all sorts of stuff that if you're not fully in an institution already can be pretty troublesome to access. But I would say that if you are thinking of doing tabletop therapy as something that you're interested in, something you want to pursue, figure out which way you want to approach it first. Because the school of thought that you approach therapy with is the one that is going to inform the way you use the tool. For example, like I said before, I'm in a field called drama therapy, which specifically looks at theater techniques, psychodrama, things like that. And we take all those pieces and use that as our therapeutic basis. So I specifically focus on the way that your body functions when you're acting character, the way that you are holding tension where stress is how you process it through your body and through your emotions those kinds of things are the way that we focus on so i'm always a little bit my attunement is focused on okay how is someone sitting how are they moving are they arms crossed closed up are they looking around the room like they don't want to be here what is going on how is that resistance playing out physically for them and that's one way to look at it if you wanted to go the more traditional sort of therapy route you could look at it through the cognitive behavior or dialectic behavioral standpoint you can do therapy through marriage and family systems you can use pieces like that. You could probably also do it in social work, though I admit I know very little about social work. It's not my field. But know the therapist you want to be. Know the school that, figure out the school that resonates with you. Try to learn that piece before you commit to anything. And then know that the tabletop therapy is something you are going to have to apply this 
theoretical framework to, and it's the vehicle you'll which by which you'll deliver it. That's, I think, the most important part if you're looking to do that as a career. If you're looking for tabletop therapy in your area, good luck. It's not easy to find. There's not very many of them, and you're gonna have to. You're gonna basically be looking for local areas. You'll probably find more places that are therapeutic practices that are running small groups already or are running groups in as part of a broader sort of organization. The number of groups that specifically only do tabletop therapy is fairly small. Game to Grow is one in Seattle if you're interested in that. Also, for those of you who are interested in learning, they do offer, I think they offer a training, one which in spirit of disclosure, I have done the levels of that. I found it super useful in my practice, but your mileage may vary. That's probably the best way to do it for that piece is try, give it a shot, learn a little bit, go to those panels. If you're at, if you are a gamer and you're at a tabletop convention, you're at a gaming convention already, they usually have the, a lot of the major ones have a mental health track. PAX has it both at PAX East and Unplugged and at West. I think Gen Con has had some occasionally if you're if you attend that convention. I've seen some in places like Total Con even, I think, but go there. Listen to them a little bit. See if that resonates with you. See if that's something you're interested in learning. Expose yourself to the idea of doing it before you do it. Roll tabletop and you yell at someone in the street. See what happens before you try it out in the real world. Nice. Excellent. All right. Jonathan Mendoza, thank you so very much for coming on tonight. This has been this has been really interesting to listen to. And I think that's been really valuable, honestly. Like a lot of what you're talking about, how to apply this into a therapeutic environment and everything, I think resonated certainly for me. I feel like it resonated for you too. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people that listen to the show. So that's I think that's really valuable. So I really appreciate you taking some time tonight to come out and, and talk to us. Absolutely. Great topic. Yeah, absolutely resonated with me. My younger brother, whom I used to use games and stuff to help with his academics, is currently a psychologist in the state of Massachusetts, has finished up his master's work, and with the clients that he sees, does use games as, like you said, that ability to draw people in, get them talking while playing a game of magic, or get them talking while playing a role-playing game or whatever. I don't think the game itself is therapeutic specifically but it's we're going to do this activity and while we're doing it we're going to end up talking about other things and so i know he tends he does that and i'm he's going to love this episode so uh, not just because his big brother's on it (laughs) because if that were the only thing (laughs) no i'll stop there but i really appreciate the conversation i think this has a lot of real impacts and it just gives me the feeling that Decisions I've made over the years were definitely on the right track. And I think that's that kind of affirmation is very positive. And though you were not being our therapist, that is very edifying and I do appreciate it. (laughs) I will say real quick about that. The most of the people who came to it that I know came from the tabletop background first. They started there because it's the tool they're familiar with. That's the way that we're familiar of the things that we see. A lot of people who've done it have had very therapeutic benefits on their own just from playing the games and from running into a lot of stuff and having to figure out what that means when they suddenly like, oh, I connect with that character a bit too much. Hold on. What's going on here? Um, That's I think a lot of people who come to it come from the love of the game and are looking for ways to see the things that they've or to use the things that they've seen in a way to really intentionally help others. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's see here. Next week on the show, we are going to be first of all finishing up our replay of the of the real thing, the Powered by the Apocalypse build to come out with by. You're wearing a real thing shirt right now. I am wearing my real thing shirt tonight because I got my full package in the mail yesterday, so I am wearing my real thing shirt tonight. And then, so that'll be on Tuesday when we finish that up. I'll finish our replay of that up, and then on Friday we're going to be finishing up our month featuring BIPOC creators in the tabletop role playing game space with Kiana Shaw talking about her cyberpunk setting Archon, which is fantastic. That interview is also totally. Amazing. So that's really going to be a good time when we talk with Canada next week. John, thanks again very much for joining us here on Tabletop Journeys. We appreciate you taking the time. And uh, gentlemen, nice to see you as always. Hope that you have a good week. I hope that you stay warm, Glenn, in the uh, in the trailer. Interesting to see how, uh, how that works out for you. Hopefully we won't wake up as popsicles. But it's <laughs> no, been exactly. fantastic yeah, talking yeah. to you tonight, John. It was yeah. a great conversation. And totally. I loved your expertise and everything you brought to it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure to Absolutely. be here. I loved it. All right. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And uh, like I said, we'll talk to you again next week. Good night, all. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys. 
joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, we would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for legends await. Oh,